Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, August 29th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Russia confirms Prigozhin's death. Zimbabwe's opposition claims massive fraud in election. Three are killed in a racially motivated mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida. Libya's foreign minister is dismissed after meeting with her Israeli counterpart. The U.S. Commerce Secretary calls for stability during a China visit. Foxconn's billionaire founder enters the Taiwan presidential race. A U.S. court cancels a hearing on a Mexican suit against gunmakers. While a Texas judge blocks a ban on transgender procedures for minors. France plans to ban students from wearing the Islamic abaya in state schools. And Idalia bears down on Cuba and eyes a Florida landfall as a major hurricane. In our top story, Russia says DNA tests confirm Prigozhin's death. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Telegraph, CBS, Voice of America, and Reuters. On Sunday, Russia's investigative committee said that DNA testing of the remains of all 10 victims of Wednesday's plane crash outside Moscow has established the identities of the deceased, and they conform to the manifest. Among the passengers listed on board the Embraer private jet were Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin, who reportedly managed Wagner's operations and allegedly served in Russian military intelligence. The announcement comes after the Kremlin dismissed speculations that Russian President Vladimir Putin may have been involved in Wednesday's crash or ordered Prigozhin's assassination as an absolute lie, accusing the West of presenting the tragedy from a certain angle. Though investigations are underway, U.S. intelligence's preliminary findings claim an onboard explosion caused the flight to crash suddenly and that the explosion falls in line with Putin's long history of trying to silence his critics. Meanwhile, Putin has signed a decree ordering Wagner troops, private military contractors, or civilian fighting on behalf of the armed forces in Ukraine to sign a former oath of allegiance to Russia. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-Russia narrative from the New York Post. The Wagner boss had a history of disappearing, only to then reappear, so it's possible Prigozhin and Moscow have faked his death. However, even if the rebel didn't escape the crash, it's foolhardy to believe that any evidence will ever emerge to conclude that Putin's fingerprints are all over this incident. We follow that up with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Though Prigozhin was a traitor, Putin offered him an exit to Belarus. After his death, the Russian president praised him for his talent and bravery. Unfortunately, the West is spreading conspiracy theories about the victims of a plane crash, which was likely a result of technical failure, human error, or safety regulation violations. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 19% chance there will be a U.S.-Russia war before 2050. Eric, I didn't think about that. That's the big brain move from Prigozhin. What if he faked his own death on his own private jet? That would be pretty slick. Maybe he's getting coffee with Bruce Wayne or something like the uh, Dark Knight Rises. Either that or he's living in some of the old housing that uh, some of the Nazis moved into after the World War II. Right, yeah, Adolf Eichmann's uh, old villa. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The opposition claims gigantic fraud in Zimbabwe's recent election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ADA 24-7, Africa News, The Zimbabwean, Washington Post, Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. On Sunday, Zimbabwe's prominent opposition leader accused the ruling party of blatant and gigantic fraud in the country's elections after incumbent President Emerson Mnangagwa was declared the winner. The allegation comes after Mnangagwa was re-elected for a second and final five-year term with 52.6% of the vote. 
Nelson Chamiza of the Citizens Coalition for Change secured 44% of the ballots. Chamiza, who also lost to Monongagwa five years ago, claimed that Zimbabwe was suffering from a vicious cycle of disputed elections and accused Monongagwa of staging a coup against the electoral process. Though international observers stated the election process was peaceful, they admitted it was compromised by multiple irregularities, including intimidation of voters and activists, which cast in doubt the credibility of the process. Meanwhile, Monongagwa's ZANU-PF party spokesman, Chris Mutvangwa, said the polls had shown that Zimbabweans are democratic and that a new confidence is being instilled in the southern African country. Monongagwa became president of Zimbabwe, once considered the breadbasket of Southern Africa in 2017 after a coup against longtime ruler Robert Mugabe. This year, almost 3.8 million Zimbabweans, affected by high unemployment and poverty, are expected to experience food insecurity. Scott, thanks for the rundown of those facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A, and it's coming from The Herald. Zimbabwe's elections were the most peaceful the country has seen in a long time. The role of international observers is to provide an objective account of the proper conduct of elections, not to serve foreign interests and undermine the legislature of a foreign state. Also, Chamisa tried to intimidate voters and threatened violence if he lost the election to Monongagwa again. However, Zimbabweans were not deterred and exercised their democratic right in large numbers. And counter that with this narrative B from The National. Not only did Zimbabwe's election occur in a climate of fear, but the government also weaponized the judiciary to ensure its electoral victory through undemocratic means. Therefore, the West can't normalize relations with Harare and must maintain the country's isolation under the leadership of Mugabe's former confidant, Monongagwa, a government that rules through violence, looting, and impunity must not be part of the international community. We have a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 96% chance that Zimbabwe's president will belong to the ZANU-PF party at the end of 2023. Tragic news in Florida as three have been killed in a racially motivated shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, PBS NewsHour, Washington Post, Fox News, and The Guardian. Police on Sunday identified Ryan Christopher Palmeter, who is white, as the shooter in what they classified as a racially motivated attack that resulted in three black people being killed at a dollar store in Jacksonville, Florida on Saturday. Sheriff T.K. Waters said Palmeter, 21, used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and a Glock handgun to shoot one victim as she sat outside a store in her car, shot another after entering the store, and shot a third minutes later. Police described how Palmeter initially drove to Edward Waters University, a historically black college and university, or HBCU, but was denied entry. He then went to the store and killed 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, 19-year-old Anult Joseph Laguerre, and 29-year-old Gerald Deshaun Gallion. Police also said that Paul Meter, who killed himself at the scene, called his father to tell him to enter his room at home, where he found a last will and testament and a suicide note on the son's laptop. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, has opened a civil rights investigation and is treating the incident as a hate crime, as Waters said that Paul Meter left behind several manifestos detailing his hatred of black people. President Joe Biden reacted to the tragedy by saying white supremacy has no place in America. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination, called Palmeter a hateful lunatic and vowed to protect HBCUs. Thanks for that horrible and tragic update, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from Salon.com. 
It's hypocritical for DeSantis and other Republicans to claim they sympathize with these victims when it's GOP policies that incite these type of tragedies. In addition to the lax gun laws DeSantis has signed in Florida, his unending talk of fighting against woke ideas is nothing but a dog whistle for racist policies. Republicans should take action to further equality and safety rather than inciting hate. Town Hall gives us a Republican narrative. Democrats are using the aftermath of a tragedy to talk about politics and find ways and undermine the Second Amendment. This horrific incident was carried out by a wicked individual, and any talk about guns should be related to how well-intentioned armed citizens could have made a difference. Restricting law-abiding Americans' access to firearms is never the answer. Libya's foreign minister is dismissed after an Israeli meeting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, CNN, The Associated Press, NBC, and Reuters. Libya's foreign minister, Najla Mangouche, has been removed from her position after a meeting she had with Israeli foreign minister Eli Cohen in Rome sparked outrage and protests throughout Libya. Libyan Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Debebe, who heads the National Unity Government, announced Mangouche's dismissal Sunday and also revealed that the now former foreign minister was referred for investigation over her meeting. Mangouche met with Cohen and Italy's foreign minister last week in Rome, marking the first diplomatic meeting between Israel and Libya. Israel's foreign ministry announced the meeting Sunday night and was quickly met with backlash by the public in both countries. Libya, which has generally supported Palestinian issues, does not have diplomatic relations with Israel. Libya attempted to downplay the meeting, calling it informal and unprepared, adding that it did not include negotiations or consultations. Sources told the Associated Press that Debebe knew about the meeting, with one saying that he approved it when he visited Rome last month. The meeting reportedly lasted two hours and touched on topics such as the normalization of relations, the protection of Libya's former Jewish community, and U.S.-brokered efforts to have Libya establish diplomatic ties with Israel. Libyans took to the streets, blocking roads and burning tires in protest of the meeting with Israel. The protesters also waved the Palestinian flag. Thank you, Scott. The Jerusalem Post begins our round of spins with Narrative A. Israel completely botched its efforts to normalize relations with Libya after its foreign ministry leaked information about the meeting between Cohen and Mangouche. Publicizing the meeting while tensions were so high was a recipe for disaster. Israel's handling of the situation is responsible for this incident. And Narrative B comes from Barron's. Despite the rampant report, Israel didn't leak information about the meeting between Cohen and the Libyan foreign minister. The Israeli government is committed to protecting the Jewish community at home and abroad and wouldn't do anything to undermine the security and protection of people in the Middle East. There were other sources that led to this controversy. Middle East Eye gives us Narrative C. Though it's unlikely the U.S. put pressure on Dibabe to normalize its ties between his administration and Israel, Dibabe's political calculus was almost certainly guided by the Biden administration's push to normalize ties between Israel and other Arab nations. However, Libyans, like Arabs across the region, refuse to normalize with a political entity that is currently oppressing the Palestinians. The idea of this meeting was problematic from the start. Turning our attention to China as the U.S. Commerce Secretary makes a visit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Hill, Associated Press, and Washington Post. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo on Monday started three days of meetings in China by meeting in Beijing with Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wintao, explaining to him it's, quote, profoundly important for there to be stable relations between the two nations. Raimondo expressed concerns about restrictions on American businesses, including Intel and Micro. And she and her Chinese counterpart also talked about Beijing's restrictions 
on gallium and germanium exports for more than two hours. Raimondo and Wang agreed to begin, quote, an export control enforcement information exchange, which Raimondo said will reduce misunderstanding of U.S. national security policies. The group will hold its first in-person meeting Tuesday. In addition to discussing commercial issues, Raimondo, who will also visit Shanghai, will promote Chinese travel and tourism to the U.S. Raimondo's visit follows similar steps taken by high-ranking U.S. officials, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and climate change envoy John Kerry, in an effort to improve bilateral relations. Thanks, Eric. CNN brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The U.S. is doing exactly what it needs to do to recreate a favorable environment for policies that will be mutually beneficial to create a favorable environment for policies that will be mutually beneficial to both it and China. Raimondo won't sacrifice national security while bettering the U.S.'s relationship with China and fostering more transparency. The U.S. has already made a positive gesture by removing some export controls. And a follow-up from China Daily with an establishment critical narrative. This visit, like prior ones by Biden administration officials, won't affect much change considering how the U.S.'s actions contradict its words in so many arenas. The Biden administration lacks the courage to stand up to anti-China forces back home to stabilize this important relationship. China will move on unfazed as it continues to engage in a complex, multipolar world order. I was watching uh, some Dave Ramsey, uh, as I want to do on YouTube, and uh, someone called and, you know, he's a personal finance guy, but someone called and asked him about what he thinks about, you know, the new BRICS alliance and, you know, China and the Middle East and Africa kind of like working together to make their own economic team. And uh, if that threatens the United States and his answer was that maybe, but the U.S. economy is so wrapped up in the whole world that it wouldn't really behoove anyone to try to take down the the U.S. economy. It would would probably do more harm than good. Foxconn's founder announces his bid for president of Taiwan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Time Magazine, France 24, Al Jazeera, CNBC, Asia One, and Reuters. Foxconn founder Terry Goh announced on Monday for Taiwan's presidency in the January 2024 election saying he wanted to unite the opposition and ensure that Taiwan doesn't become, quote, the next Ukraine. Go, who is a billionaire, stepped down from his position at Foxconn in 2019 to pursue a nomination for the KMT, an opposition party that historically favors close ties with China. Go had announced earlier his intention to run for president, but was sidelined when the KMT chose new Taipei City Mayor Ho Yu-e as its candidate. Go must collect 290,000 signatures by November 2nd to qualify to run as an independent candidate for the office. At Monday's press conference, Go said, I implore the people of Taiwan to give me four years. I promise that I will bring peace to the Taiwan Strait for the next 50 years and lay the deepest foundation of mutual trust between the two sides. In July, Go criticized the ruling DPP over the U.S.'s role in exacerbating regional tensions and urged Washington to engage with Beijing under the One China framework. Taiwan's Vice President Lai Ching-te, the presidential candidate for the DPP, is currently leading in the polls. Former Taipei Mayor Ko Wen-je of the Taiwan's People's Party has typically been polling second, with KMT's Ho farther behind in third place. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-China narrative coming from Asia One. In the past seven years, the Democratic Progressive Party has led Taiwan to the brink of war. If Foxconn's billionaire founder Terry Goh wins the upcoming election, he has promised to bring 50 years of peace to the Taiwan Strait and build the deepest foundation of trust throughout the region. Goh's vision would bring deep stability to the region in a complex, multipolar world. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Taiwan News. 
Go's appeasement to Beijing is deeply problematic. It is not in Taipei's interests, nor in the interest of the global community, for a presidential candidate to be platforming geopolitically destabilizing PRC talking points. Unlike Go, the DPP believes in defending national sovereignty, democracy, and freedom, which is why the DPP holds a strong lead in the polls. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 5% chance that China will recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan by the year 2050. A hearing on a Mexican lawsuit against U.S. gun dealers has been canceled. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, Associated Press, Bloomberg Law, and Al Jazeera. A U.S. appeals court has canceled a hearing on Mexico's $10 billion lawsuit against U.S. gun dealers scheduled for Monday in an Arizona court, according to Mexico's foreign ministry. The ministry says the judge assigned to the case is considering recusing herself. This is the second of two similar lawsuits, with Mexico claiming U.S. gun manufacturers are liable for gun violence in Mexico, arguing that the companies are aware their guns are smuggled into the country for cartel-related violence. Mexico estimates that 70% of weapons trafficked into the country originate in the U.S., and that trafficked weapons were linked to 17,000 homicides in 2019 alone. In September 2022, a federal judge in Boston dismissed Mexico's initial lawsuit against 11 manufacturers, ruling the companies are protected under the 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which shields them from lawsuits resulting from the criminal or unlawful misuse of their weapons. Mexico is also seeking $10 billion in damages in that case. On appeal, the First Circuit appeared to open the arguments that gun manufacturers knowingly make and sell weapons that can be easily modified in Mexico into automatic weapons. The court appears skeptical of the novel claim that gun makers are not shielded from liability when it involves a foreign country. In the Arizona case, the defendants are five gun distributors Mexico accuses of contributing to gun trafficking south of the border. Gun control in Mexico is more stringent than in the U.S. Well, believe it or not, Eric, there are some diametrically opposed political narratives on this story. Fox News brings us the right narrative. Gun makers in the U.S. are not responsible for Mexico's sorry state. The Mexican government's mismanagement and inability to crack down on their cartels and U.S. policy failures are the sole causes of the horrific violence in the country. America cannot allow a foreign country to cripple its gun market with their flimsy legal reasoning, with the backing of blue state anti-gun zealots. The left narrative comes from Texas Public Radio. The epidemic of gun violence is not isolated to the U.S., as its lax gun control allows weapons to flow south of the border to fuel an already devastating drug war. Gun makers know that the vast majority of weapons used by the cartels come from the U.S. and are hiding behind a statute to shield themselves from liability. The courts can and must hold them accountable for the harm that they have caused. A judge blocks a ban on transgender procedures for minors. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Alternet, TPR, Fox 4 News, Dallas, and Reuters. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Maria Contu Hexel issued a temporary injunction to stop Texas from enforcing a law that would prohibit healthcare professionals from providing transgender procedures to minors. The law, the judge ruled, likely violates the Texas Constitution because it allegedly infringes on the fundamental right of parents to make decisions concerning the care, custody, and control of their children. Hexel added that the law would result in the loss of access to safe, effective, and medically necessary treatment for transgender adolescents experiencing gender dysphoria. The law, which the defense lawyers claimed was enacted to protect minors from scientifically unsound treatment, was scheduled to take effect September 1st. 
The law, signed by Governor Greg Abbott in June, would see Texas join at least 20 other states in enacting bans on transgender procedures. Meanwhile, the state filed an appeal to the Texas Supreme Court, putting Friday's ruling on hold. The Texas Attorney General's office said it would continue to enforce the laws duly enacted by the Texas legislature. Scott, thanks for the facts. We begin our round of spins with the right narrative coming from National Review. If laws banning gender transition medical treatments are blocked from taking effect, countless children will have their well-being threatened. The state must prevent minors from accessing hormone therapies, puberty blockers, and transition surgeries as they are unsafe, untested, and can cause long-term physical and fertility issues. And the left narrative from Scientific American. First it was the government and now it's the state's justice system that has failed to protect the most vulnerable of the American population. Ignoring a decade of research that shows gender-affirming care improves transgender youth's mental health and reduces the risk of depression and suicide violates these children's and their families' rights. Turning our attention to France as they ban abeya in state schools. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, The Week, France 24, Al Jazeera, and Al Arabia. Starting September 4th, students will be banned from wearing abayas, or robe-like outer garments that are worn by some women in the Muslim faith, in France's state-run schools, the country's education minister Gabriel Attal announced Sunday. Defending his decision to ban the abaya, Attal stated, When you walk into a classroom, you shouldn't be able to identify the pupils' religion just by looking at them. Atal claimed that the dress violated France's secular laws, saying Abeya is a religious gesture that tests the country's resistance toward the secular sanctuary that school must constitute. A 2004 law bans wearing, quote, signs or outfits by which students ostensibly show a religious affiliation in educational institutes, including large crosses, Jewish kippahs, and Islamic headscarves. In 2010, France banned wearing full-face veils in public. According to the French Council of Muslim Faith, a national organization representing numerous Muslim associations, clothing alone isn't a religious sign. All right, lots of spins surrounding this controversy, Eric. Let's kick it off with the left narrative from CNN. The Abaya ban in French schools violates fundamental rights and religious freedom of expression. It also stigmatizes and marginalizes young girls who practice the Islamic faith. Additionally, the ban is unconstitutional as French law bans attire displaying religious worship in state-run schools, but the floor-length dress isn't classified as religious clothing. Follow that up with the right narrative coming from the Times of Israel. The move comes after months of debate over abayas in France's state-run schools, where not just Muslim religious symbols but Christian and Jewish signs are also banned. Islamic attire is undoubtedly being used politically to circumvent France's strict laws and damage the country's secular fabric. The reality is that secular policies are implemented across all religions fairly. Le Monde brings us the establishment critical narrative. President Emmanuel Macron's Renaissance Party is attempting to compete with Marine Le Pen's far-right national rally by targeting Muslims and their civil liberties. Atal's attempt to pander to far-right voters has broader implications for civil liberties in French society. Nerd narrative for this story coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 40% chance that Emmanuel Macron will dissolve the French National Assembly before the end of his term. Our final story, Idalia, impacts Cuba ahead of a projected major Florida landfall. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Tallahassee Democrats, CNN, NBC, Time Magazine, and Reuters. On Monday, Tropical Storm Idalia bore down on the western regions of Cuba bringing high winds and the threat of flash flooding and landslides. Idalia is expected to intensify rapidly before making landfall in Florida as a major hurricane early this week. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said the storm will impact areas from Tampa to Tallahassee, while warning that other areas are also at risk. Idalia could bring up to 11 feet, or 3 meters of storm surge, to parts of Florida's coast, with winds around 115 miles per hour or 185 kilometers per hour, with uncertainty still in the forecast. Florida's Big Bend, the area where the state's panhandle transitions into the peninsula, could be the most affected by Adalia along with the southwestern coast and areas west of Tallahassee. Counties such as Duval announced school closures. President Joe Biden authorized an emergency declaration for the state Monday ahead of expected landfall, with Florida officials setting up evacuation teams with 5,500 National Guard members ready to respond. Florida Governor DeSantis told Floridians that they should be prepared to lose power and urged people to seek higher ground if told to evacuate. The storm could bring significant rainfall to Florida as well as parts of Georgia and the Carolinas. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Newsweek. Idalia is rapidly strengthening, and the storm could create one of the most deadly hurricanes in recent memory. Floridians must do all they can to prepare for this storm, which will likely devastate multiple communities. Idalia is currently projected to reach Category 3, with some experts projecting even higher. This storm is very unpredictable, and the public should prepare for the worst. And News Press brings us Narrative B. While Floridians should certainly be prepared for Idalia and listen to the advice of public officials, Floridians are well-prepared and resilient and should not panic. There is also an excellent system of emergency management in the Sunshine State. It's of paramount importance to prepare, but there are also reasons for optimism for a successful response. Our final nerd narrative, coming from Metaculous Prediction Community, says that there's a 50% chance that there will be at least nine hurricanes in the North Atlantic in 2024. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more about the Verity Podcast at verity.news. You can download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity podcast. Podcast.